Welcome to Shiftonomics, Episode 1, The Future of Retail. I'm your host, Taylor Pipes. In the past few years, retail has experienced profound transformation, rapid advances in technology and mobile development, has changed consumer shopping habits at speeds measured in instant delivery, next day shipping, and gotta have it now. What's in store for the future of in-store shopping? Depending on who you ask, it's either profoundly dark or brightly optimistic. While there's a lot of noise coming about the end of malls and the death of shopping in stores, there's a few voices out there working hard to see the opportunities that experience has in sustaining brick-and-mortar retail. One of those voices is Ryan Brochard. He's Managing Director at Techstars Retail. We had the opportunity to chat with Ryan recently about the crossroads in retail, the in-store experience, and the art of consumer personalization, the impact on supply chain, and the digital tools that can help retailers today. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Taylor. Appreciate it, and, and uh, excited to be on the today. So, um, as Taylor mentioned, I'm the managing director of the uh, TechStars Retail Accelerator in partnership with Target. And so, my background, um, you know, multi-time entrepreneur, uh, more recently got into the investment side of of tech startups. Um, run a uh, venture capital fund called Matchstick Ventures uh, that I'm the founder and managing director for. And then more recently joined Techstars as the managing director of our retail program. Um, So if you're not familiar with Techstars, um, it is a uh, worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. Um, We run accelerator programs uh, in in literally uh, every continent outside of of Antarctica. around the world. And so we see a lot of innovation, a lot of, lot of startups. Um, and, you know, we select 10 of those companies for each accelerator. They all move to one location um, for a three month period. And then we inundate them with 150 plus mentors. Um, you know, in our program in particular, we have Target as our, our main backers. So we work with Target executives um, and other mentors who provide uh, guidance and assistance to the startups. Um, and then over the course of three months, uh, they get the, the, the mentorship, um, you know, workshops, speakers, et cetera, that accelerates the companies uh, for them. And it culminates with a demo day at the end. So, um, yeah, we've literally seen thousands of, of retail tech startups that, uh, you know, we're reviewing for the program. We've had 20 companies uh, run through the program and, you know, we're gearing up for year three, uh, which will start this summer uh, in July in Minneapolis. And what do you say is the most um, interesting or fun thing you've seen in the last year of working uh, in, in this venture? Um, you know, not to get to like a specific company, but it's been the timing of us starting this program. Um, and, you know, with the disruption going on in the retail industry to be kind of sitting at the nexus uh, between the startups in the corporations, uh, you know, or in the large retailers, we literally position ourselves directly in between of it. So we're trying to help startups um, you know, up their game so that they can work with the large retailers, but we're also helping large retailers understand the needs of, of the startups so that they can actually work together. Cause I think there was, there's been a, um, you know, a giant chasm between the two of them for a long time. So we're starting to see that, that chasm close. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of interesting partnerships, pilots, um, et cetera. And I think that's been a big shift in the market, um, just over the last couple of years. That's a very interesting point. I think it's a great, a great segue into today's topic because um, you, a lot of our viewers may be joining us from large enterprise companies and wondering how they can kickstart some of these initiatives. And, and I think the, the market for retail tech has never been more interesting and exciting than it has been the last year. Um, it, it, Minneapolis has been obviously where we're located uh, is a huge hub of that happening. So I think that's a, an interesting point to kind of carry through the conversation. Um, yes, definitely. So with that being said, um, we're really at a crossroads in retail. Um, legacy retailers uh, are close, closing or facing questions about their survival. Stores are shuttering. Um, right now, Macy's, Sears, and J. Crew are all, all facing sort of murky futures. Um, in 2017, Radio Shack um, had some of the most closures of any, of any retailer with 1,000 stores that closed. Payless had 512. So, Right now, we're really at a, at a, at a shift in, in terms of what the retail climate looks like. And unfortunately, a lot of the headlines have been a, a pretty negative ar- around this because, uh, you know, things, things are changing so fast. And I think a lot of that's been led by images like this, you know, the fall of the mall, uh, losing anchor tenants uh, that have been leading to mall closings. These are the images you see on nightly news and local news. 
Um, I think the projections I'm seeing are 25% of malls will be closing in the next few years. Uh, losing anchor tenants like a JCPenney uh, equals like a death blow to the mall. But I think, again, uh, this has been painting a really overly uh, negative picture for retail. Um, but I'm, I think the mall is an interesting place to start this conversation, Ryan, because the malls have kind of brought up a lot of questions about retail goes from here. So what are your thoughts on, on, on what's, how, what you're seeing with you know, malls as leading towards changes in technology and retail? Yeah, uh, you're leaving up this uh, dystopian future photo on there. It's a pretty bleak picture. Um, no, I mean, I think there has been a lot of, I mean, clearly the data shows uh, of the changeover and where it is, but you know, I think the, the main takeaway is that there, there's a lot of hype around that um, and, and everyone's saying that the sky is falling. Um, while there is change occurring, I think the fundamentals of the market um, very much are holding. And to me, that, that screams opportunity to the people who actually embrace um, this innovation. And it's a chance for people to really change the positioning of, of their company and kind of how they see and operate their company as a whole. Like, there's been no better time to, you know, reevaluate the, the status quo of your company than right now, because, you know, I, I think if you don't, and you're not taking a hard look at what your company is going to be in the next five, 10, or even if you're going to be a company in the next five or 10 years, um, then, then, you know, you either go one route or the other. And it's really the crossroads of where it is. And it's actually a great opportunity to evaluate um, you know, what your business model is, where the opportunities for improvement are, opportunity to cut some fat um, where needed um, because the market is demanding it um, in that regard. So yeah, while there has been a lot of store closures, and, you know, clearly there's been the rise of Amazon and online and just kind of this whole new wave of um, consumer driven uh, demand for, for products when and where they want them. Um, I also think it, that screams opportunity, right? It screams opportunity um, for people to, to jump on um, um, this disruption and kind of the new normal in, in the industry. I think the interesting is um, malls are an interesting, an interesting part of this narrative because um, I think it's a lot is happening behind just a picture like that you see here. Um, a lot of these closures are, are telling us a lot about the demographics shifting in, in America. There's a, there's a return to urban centers. Uh, young workers want to be closer to their jobs. So they're leaving these suburban locations where these malls, um, you know, with a generation ago were thriving because families were locating there are now moving. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also uh, a lot of mall operators, uh, lots happening with the assignment and these different groups who are reshuffling their portfolios and they are uh, closing and refocusing on, on closing some of their less you know, mid-tier malls and focusing on their top tier, they call them A or B malls. So actually, I think there are some malls that are actually really thriving. The King of Prussia Mall in, Pencil in, uh, in Pennsylvania, the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Irvine Spectrum, these are all locations that actually are beefing up their their store portfolios and I think they're doing really well. And I think that that's something that we don't really hear that, that I think is a positive note for retailers. <clears throat> well, and I think there's, there's a point to be made here of, of the difference between the mall and the retailer, right? Like ultimately malls are real estate plays um, on there. And the, the change in demand from, from consumers is not necessarily that they don't want to buy things from a retailer is, is more so that they may not want to buy things at a mall. Right. And that might be a change of preference um, from that. And the ones that are um, the, the malls that are doing well have very much. And I can speak from Mall of America. It's just down the road from us. Um, you know, they, they very much change it from um, not just a retail destination, but, you know, really a, an experience destination. So you see a lot of the new stuff going in is actually much more experiential. Um, they've got you know, roller coasters and, and uh, aquariums, you know, all these things that are kind of wrapped around uh, a retail experience from there. And I think they've made huge investments in there to continue to have it be, it's, I think it's the top tourist destination in all of Minnesota um, is actually the Mall of America. And so kind of rebranding the mall as a tourist destination versus just a, a retail destination probably speaks volume to the entire industry, but particularly to, I think, malls, which ultimately are a real estate play. Um, and retailers benefit from that. And we're gonna to touch on that a little bit as we could dive into the uh, experiential part of this presentation, but I think that's a great point. And uh, a very local point that, uh, that, uh, that we at Branch and, and you as, at Techstars can focus on because it's right in our backyard in Bloomington. Um, yeah. 
So I think that leads to a positive note that's going to kind of kickstart this conversation about experience and uh, personalization. Uh, we like to take the high road and thinking that this isn't going to be an apocalypse and we're going we're gonna to fight through that noise. And, and look at the data, it suggests that there's actually some really great things coming for retail in 2018. Uh, the United States alone has over 1 million retail locations with annual sales increasing 4% year over year since 2010. Online sales really only represent less than 10% of retail. Uh, and stores like Dollar General, Walmart, Gap, Target, Tractor Supply Company, Nordstrom's are all seeing success and positive growth uh, heading into 2018. Um, some other uh, retailers like Kohl's uh, have seen some really great numbers from one of the best uh, holiday seasons that we've seen in over a decade. So what do you, what do you, what do you make of, this, uh, of these positive numbers that, that you're seeing here? Yeah, I mean, I think that goes to the narrative of the sky isn't falling, right? Like, I think the weather patterns are changing uh, overall. So you got, you got to, you know, see through that noise of, of uh, the apocalypse. And I mean, even in the tech industry, you, which, you know, I sit more so on than, than the retail industry. Um, you hear the, the doomsday scenarios of like, everyone's dead. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of the, the walking dead. And I, I don't believe that. I think it's much more of a straddling of, of the two. Like there's going to be changes, but I also don't think there's going to be, you know, the, the strong will survive. Um, people will still uh, make purchases in stores, um, but there's going to be a, a different component to why why they do that, right? And and what draws them into your store versus versus a different store, and it's going to be the whole experience uh, from that, not just the um, loyalty side of it, right? Like there's going to be a like why should I do that versus go online versus go to a different store, um, and that that conversation wasn't being had 10 years ago, right? And now it has to be had because it should be really the forefront of strategy um, for, for major retailers is where do we meet the customer and why? And I think um, brick and mortar retail um, can, can solve a huge piece of that. They just got to really think through the strategy of where they meet their customers. And I think that's a great segue into our, um, into our next topic here. Um, I was reading a book, The Four by Scott Galloway, a, a clinical um, marketing professor at NYU. And obviously we're not talking about Amazon a whole lot, even though it is obviously a huge part of this conversation, but he mentions uh, when Amazon zigs, retailers should zag. And, and I think that speaks to diving into this next thing is like Amazon does certain things really, really, really well. Uh, but retailers, whether you're a enterprise retailer or a small brick and mortar local store uh, in, a, in a small town or a large size city in the United States, there are things that you can do, and I think the experience is something that's happening that's reshaping a lot of how consumers are shopping. And it's something that, that Amazon really probably can't hone in on as well right now because these are things that stores uh, are, are going to be focusing on from a consumer's pr perspective. So I want to kind of get your opinion on what does, what does the in-store experience mean to you today, Ryan, and, and, and how does it impact shopping for you or for, for people in general? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's such a loosely held term, like in-store experience, like, is it an emotional experience? Is it a convenience experience? Is it a sensual <laughs> experience, emotional experience? Like, uh, I, I think it, it's kind of like overused to some extent. Um, I think the, ex the experience um, is unique to every person who walks in the door. Um, and I think it's more so, I think a lot of the retailers originally were thinking about how do we maximize the um, you know dollars spent in a store every single time they come in, and now it's more about just getting them to come in, right? They before it was a given that they were going to walk in the door because they had to. Now they don't have to. So how do we get them to do that? Well, you draw them in by a you know experience, and I think there's some uh, some really interesting case studies of of why people come in and and uh, you know what drives them back in. Uh, I think is is another thing too, but. You know, if you look at the, the assortment of, of goods and like why people go into retailers, I think the convenient play, like if you're just buying the, the toilet paper and the, you know, the everyday essentials, like that's going to be a hard play ultimately because that's something that you can get delivered to your house in, in less than two hours. It's not a sexy shopping experience to go through. <laughs> and so if that's the case, then like, why wouldn't you just kind of order that online and have it delivered to your door when you need it? Um, however, if it's going into some more like decision-making shopping, you know, where it might be a style, 
it might be um, choosing this one or the other one, stuff you want to touch and feel, then I think that's where the competition in store can, can really heat up. Um, you know, and or if you have kind of your own unique brand that can only be found within, within your store um, and not, not in other stores and not on other online experiences to be kind of shopped against other stuff, um, I think you've got a, you've got a real advantage um, in that point. But ultimately, you're trying to create something that a customer can identify with, that they, they enjoy, that they're willing to you know, get off their computer, go out of work, go to a store, spend their time, uh, you know, and people have different reasons for wanting to do that. Um, so you got to figure out specifically who your customer is and then meet them um, on their terms for that. And I think the interesting thing again here is um, differentiating a little bit from what Amazon does, does really well is they've made, they've made, they've streamlined the process of chore shopping so well <clears throat> that it almost may, it, it makes what was once a, a really tiresome uh, sometimes daily habit of going to the store to get items that we need to restock our shelves at home into something that can happen and it streamline, streamline it so well that a lot of people now are fearing like they don't want to, they don't want to miss out on these local authentic experiences that involve entertainment, food and drink. And I think that that, um, you know, Airbnb is actually one that comes to mind. You know, it's not a retailer per se, but their model right now, their whole branding is shifting uh, very quietly to become a very experience driven um, mm -hmm. play. And I think that speaks a lot to how younger shoppers uh, think about things when they're, when they're buying things in retail. Yeah. And I, I like the, the, the FOMO point on uh, that last slide there is that you're starting to see a lot of uh, retail be based around the drop, right? Like only the insiders know, or some celebrity makes an announcement an hour before, you know, and you feel special um, by going there and you've seen a lot of pop-up shops and, and uh, kind of these like limited time only drops, which I think is fairly fascinating when you think about it um, of, it almost flips the script on everything that you would think a retailer would do um, in that they're, they're planning 12 months out and they're announcing something a long time before. So then people can get ready for it. So they can get to the store when it opens and all that stuff. And this is like almost the opposite. Like we're not going to tell anyone what we're going to do. Right. And then we're going to announce it and then do it, you know, an hour later or the next day or whatever it is and trying to like flip the the curve, if you will, on, customer demand while that may be more of a flash in the pan uh, if you do it right like that can be a pretty big flash <laughs> right and it can be well can be well worth it so you're seeing a trend in the market um, kind of towards these like kind of drops um, beforehand and hopefully there's like a sustained revenue that come comes off of the initial hype and there, there's actually a brand called outlier outdoor I don't know if you've heard of them um, yep. they're like a clothing company that's doing exactly that they're they have what they call drops in their parlance is called experiments and they only unleash those on Instagram uh, using like high style, high fidelity photography that then pushes people to a place where they can purchase it. And by, by, by the time you've looked at it an hour later, they've already sold out because they've, they've drawn the appeal to that sort of virtual social drop, which is I think fascinating. Um, uh, the stores that I think are doing it best. I mean, we, this, we can only pick, we only pick three here, but um, Martin Patrick three is a, is a Minneapolis retailer. I don't know if you've, if you've been over there, yeah. Ryan. Um, yeah. but I, I think they exemplify this whole movement the best. Um, they have a 15,000 square foot boutique store. Uh, it's really hard to describe it. It's like, it's everything, um, but it's pretty it, much. It, it focuses on exceptional customer service. They don't push sales. They almost kind of uh, harken back to this old, this older day of sales where they try to build relationships with their consumers instead of uh, pushing product on them. So they're doing a lot of things differently. I mean, I don't know if you can speak to that, but I think it, Martin Patrick three is a exemplifies this whole experiential movement the best. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's spot on, right? Like they, they, they really, I feel like they really know their customer really well and they're just trying to put them in a situation that they feel comfortable to purchase without the, the, you know, sales associate coming up and saying, you should buy this, have, you know, buy that. And I think that, I mean, that really speaks to the millennial generation and I'm not going to speak on behalf of all my fellow millennials here, but you can, you, you know, that that is a, a trend with them is like, they don't want to be sold. They want to, they want to experience and they want to have a relationship. And I think, you know, Martin Patrick, Patrick three um, hits that on the head for sure. And of course we've got uh, Bonobos and Warby Parker. I think Warby Parker kind of was the first to really look at a vertical that hadn't been changed in, 
ophthalmology and eyeglasses, I guess, you know, and say, you know, how can we make, how can we fundamentally change and rewrite the, the entire focus of this industry? And I think they've done it the best um, and they've done it really the earliest. It's, I think they've been around for what coming up on maybe eight years, but um, mm -hmm. what, what were the price points for some glasses are $500 in their store. It's around $95. Um, and they're very, you know, upfront with customer service and, and their stores have essentially become, um, I, I believe they're modeled after library, libraries and bookstores, but they've become such a great spot to just kind of hang out. And I think that's another interesting thing is we like to hang out at these places, you know, consumers yeah. before didn't used to, they used to go in, get it, get the stuff and get out. And that's not really the way it is anymore. Right? No. Well, and I think both of like Bonobos and Warby Parker, one thing to note is, is it wasn't a bunch of technology being thrown at, at um, the experience, right? It was just like literally changing the experience uh, from there of like putting the, the consumer in the driver's seat. Um, it's not like they have a fancy checkout system or, you know, stuff, uh, RFID tags or, you know, like it was just literally like a, a flip of the script of like, we're going to go deep into one vertical. We're going to own it. We're going to know everything about it. Um, and, you know, that's entrepreneurship in general. Like yeah, tech stars, we, always, we don't say go, you know, if you're going to start a retail company, don't say like, we're going to take on all the retailers in the world, like go after a vertical that you feel like you can, you can eventually own. And then there's opportunities to expand um, off of that. So find your beachhead and, and win um, and expand from there. And I think, you know, Warby Parker, Bonobos did that, uh, you know, pretty amazing. The, um, the next uh, part of this conversation dovetails a little bit on, on the experiential side, but it, it's more of the art of consumer personalization, which I think kind of goes hand to hand a little bit. Um, but again, it's delivering products that can't be found anywhere else. Um, unique branding, um, focusing on, on attention to detail, you know, the exceptional customer care, the, the ability, if, if, if younger shoppers and millennials like to experience things, they also like to touch the product, see the product, understand its story. I think storytelling is a massive opportunity for, for brands to, to hone in on, on this as well. But uh, what, do you, what are you seeing in terms of the, the personalization changes in retail, whether it's a, a startup you've been working with or experience you've had in, in real life? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I think there's like the personalization of the experience, right? Like in, in the store, they know their market, so they, they personalize it to that. Um, but you, yeah, you see like a lot of these kind of niche brands coming through that are really trying to own their, find their beachhead, right? Like it might be uh, Yeti's is coolers, right? Like who would have thought there was a market for, for high-end coolers and now they sell way more than just coolers. It's like a lifestyle brand of, you know, outdoors and fishing and um, all that stuff. It's, it's pretty sweet. Um, so you're seeing the, you're seeing the niche um, stuff really play itself out and starting to make a much cumulatively and collectively having a, a really large um, piece in the market. I think the other side of the personalization of this is not just an association with, you know, a direct to consumer brand, but also the actual personalization uh, of the clothing. Um, you know, there's, you see it in the footwear industry um, right now, like whereas mass customization becomes um, the norm for in, in the footwear industry, you know, like there's going to be technologies and stuff that, that power that, um, and it allows me to have a foot, uh, not only a, a shoe that is designed by me, but also fits my specific foot, um, on there. And that's, that's pretty interesting, right? When the, the ability to say like this shoe is super unique, um, to me and it, and it fits great. Um, I think that is like the level of personalization that ultimately the supply chain is going to allow us to, to do, and that's just footwear, right? Like I think it can get to um, that at, uh, in other verticals as well. That's such an interesting point because footwear used to be such a mass commodity that you could create like a million shoes and roll them out to every store in the country and we would be happy. But now you're seeing this, this complete change where a shoe manufacturer or a shoe brand can partner with an artist that's no longer alive or, uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, a, a, or a game, a game that you played as a kid. And now you can get that same stuff printed on your shoes. I actually think like that may solve some really ch interesting frustrations on the supply side and the manufacturing yeah. side. Cause if you can partner with somebody to create that, why couldn't you partner at a local level near the buyer and actually be able to bring that merchandise to them in an hour uh, versus, mm -hmm. you know, two days from a shipment center in, you know, Van Nuys, California. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think that's, you see it in footwear. I mean, you can see it with like 
Threadless and Society6 on, on clothing, right? They get the people to basically say, I like this enough or pre-buy it and then they produce it, right? So um, you're kind of flipping the script on the, I think you're going to like this and I'm just going to put enough of them out there and then hopefully the, it sticks to the, I'm going to, I, I would buy this if you produced it, you know, type, type scenario. And that totally flips the supply chain um, on its head. It's just the technology needs to be there to, to do that. Yeah, I think another fascinating point about Yeti is that um, when you go into that flagship store in Austin, it's sandwiched between two hotels. So they've, they've deliberately tried to create this, uh, not only as a place that would reel in people that are in fishing. I mean, um, I actually, I <laughs> nice, didn't know. Nice pun that, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't know Yeti until I moved to North, uh, North Carolina and I see Yeti all over. I was like, Yeti, it's such an interesting name. What do they do? And they make coolers. And, but now kind of studying that what they've done, um, they've deliberately created this like this brand flagship store, but they, they, they don't want to be exclusionary, you know, exclusive to just people that are in those, in those, you know, interests. So they, they want it to be an open inviting spot for people to come in and it could be an activation point. So I'm sure that they've seen so many new users and so many new consumers come in there that, yeah. did, you know, that's such an interesting play too. Yeah. When I think a lot of these brands um, in the retail industry beyond experiential is they need to be inspirational, right? Like, um, I think if you, you see it in the athleisure market, right? Like a lot of people wearing athleisure wear aren't athletes, <laughs> right? They, 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 they aspire to be, or they want to associate with that. And same goes with Yeti. Like how many people have Yetis, but live, you know, in a studio apartment in Manhattan, right? Like, and, and have never gone fishing in their life. Like, but they, they kind of like associate with that and, and are inspired by that want to want to be a part of that so i think it's not only experiential like when you're in the store or like why you want to get there it's also inspirational of like why you want to be associated with that mm -hmm. and a quick mention on two other companies that are doing personalization really well sephora and um, the french luxury retailer smcp and i think this touched on another aspect of personalization that you that you started this section with is that it's not just the experience or the in-store side. It's, it's a lot of the machinations that's, that's happening on the, on the developer side. You know, these are the apps and these are the opportunities for startups and, and retail tech to help power and design and, and develop the experiences that consumers have not only in-store, but outside the store. Uh, Sephora is doing that really well, being able to point people to catalog, you know, a catalog of, of, of products that right there in the store that an associate can walk them through. I mean, I think these are really interesting changes as well. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's natural ways for technology to plug into retailers. Um, I'll take the counterpoint of that is I've seen so many applications out there of just adding technology for technology's sake. Um, and it's, it's almost like death by technology. Um, so I think, you know, as a retailer, I would be really open to trying new things in, in, in figuring out ways to pilot them so you can learn and, and grow and potentially find opportunities that gives you a differentiation. But ultimately you got to make sure that that technology is increasing the customer experience, right. Or improving it. Uh, and it's not impeding it, you know, or impeding it towards a transaction. So, you know, I think for people listening there, it's like there's ways to, to try out new technology and pilot it the right way. And, you know, tech stars, we've been really pioneering this of, of trying to get stuff in the hands of, of customers and, and, um, and, and retailers so they can really learn and, and understand this better, but not doing it for the sake of it's cool, right? Like there has to be like a real ROI to that. And how do you calculate that? And then how do you scale it if it actually works? And let's talk a little bit about the impact of the experiential retail on the supply chain. Um, a lot of the <clears throat> headlines last year, um, Amazon's partnership with Kohl's to help drive and power returns. Um, I, I think there's been some interesting things that are happening in, in, in one of the most challenging sides for the consumer is figuring out that they don't like a product and they need to return it. Um, it's such a time consuming aspect. Um, but I think some of these changes are highlighting the importance of, re, you know, reintroducing, uh, reintroducing consumers to the supply chain in a new way. And I think this is an area that, that yeah, you, you've definitely seen some changes in. Um, I'm curious if you kind of talk about like, what does this mean and, and why, why is it happening now? And why is it so fundamentally important to the retail experience? Yeah. I mean, I mean, just taking a step back on the supply chain is I think Amazon really, I mean, obviously exploited 
the, <laughs> the problems in the supply chain uh, for the existing retailers that, that a lot of it had been put together by duct tape and built upon systems that shouldn't have been built upon that were then built upon, you know, on there. And you're starting to see the crumbling of that and people, you know, investing billions and billions of dollars into that to try and keep up. And Amazon actually had the major advantage that they were a new retailer and they were able to build something using new technology off a base of, of something that gives them a huge um, competitive advantage in the marketplace um, that now, you know, ultimately I, I, you don't see Amazon as a retailer. They're more of like a supply chain, you know, master, <laughs> if you will. Like they've, they've really um, upped the game on that and is, is using that to their, to their advantage. Um, but, you know, when I look at the opportunities within the supply chain and what that means for retailers to provide a better experience to their customers, I, I honestly, I think the final frontier in that is, is returns um, and trying to figure out, I know this is a problem for retailers, like, especially if they have brick and mortar, like it's coming in, maybe one customer will, will order something online, but then they have, you know, a thousand plus entry points back into the supply chain. And as a retailer, like, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you create value out of that? How do you track that? Um, it's big pain for the retailers, but I mean, on the customer side too, like, I, I feel like that is a underestimated pain um, for a customer to, especially for online returns of trying to put it back in the box and then going to the post office, or even if you go back to the retailer, you're still basically creating an errand for yourself. Um, and so you're a little less inclined to, to purchase more, but um, knowing, knowing that you have an errand, I think impedes the progress. So there's kind of this like recipe for opportunity here um, that I think has been an overlooked. And we actually had a company in our last class um, called um, uh, Shop Turn that is addressing this market opportunity. And, you know, the more they got to know um, the retailers, um, the more they realized that it was an equal pain point for the retailers as much as it was for the customers. Um, and this ultimately comes into, you know, reverse supply chain logistics um, of how to get this stuff back into it. And so you're starting to see some movement on here, but man, I think this is a huge opportunity um, for, for some disruption and and uh, really solve this problem because I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone's really cracked the nut here. And, and on a similar note, um, Lowe's in their in uh, in a quarterly earnings call, I believe last year said um, they kind of touched on flexible fulfillment, which is you know a similar pain point. But, uh, you know, with the with the growth of online pickups, you know, they said that from an execution standpoint, sixty percent of their dot com sales were picked up in store. Forty percent of those customers came in and actually bought incremental product. Um, my wife and I had something we picked up at Lowe's the other day. We went in to pick it up, and because we were there, we started purchasing other stuff. And I think that's another, yep. obviously, a very tangential part of this as well. Totally. And you know who really likes this idea is, is CFOs within retailers because, you know, there's typically a line item around basically product loss, you know, that they end up having to sell at pennies on the dollar to get rid of inventory that maybe was returned and they weren't able to, to put it back on the shelf quick enough. Um, you know, and I think there's an opportunity for revenue growth um, within this instead of a, you know, basically an expense that they have to end up writing off. So, so speaking of Amazon and the power of delivery, um, let's talk a little bit about that. What, what is the, what is the right speed for customers? And uh, let's kind of dive into the delivery market a little bit. You know, what do you, what do you think is the right answer? I mean, we're, we're, we're quickly approaching the, gotta have it tomorrow or yesterday um, mindset, but it seems like there's a lot happening in this space. It is, and I, you know, I think Amazon has pushed the market forward, which I think is great um, in that, they, in the, and they continue to do that um, around the leveraging the, the advantages of their, you know, advanced supply chain that they have. Um, but what's interesting is like, I don't know if I necessarily believe that the, the answer is, is it, two days? Is it two hours? Is it two seconds? Right? Like, I feel like at that point, we're just building a better horse. Um, for, you know, like when, when they're doing the automobile is like, if you ask the customer what they want, they would, they would have said just a faster horse, not necessarily a, a car. Um, so I think we've been going down this path of like, just continuing to assume that it's the, like the gotta have it mentality. Well, I do think, you know, having it in, two hours is better than two weeks. Um, I think there's a, there's a middle ground here and, and I, you know, a lot of retailers, especially brick and mortar retailers potentially could leverage this is not just um, getting it quickly, but getting it where I want it. 
right? I think that that you're starting to see a big pain point in the market, especially if you're in a dense urban area or you're a working professional, stuff's being left on doorsteps. It's like, is there a way to actually schedule where I pick it up? You know, and that could be in the store if, if, if that's accessible and could be an advantage. But on the flip side, it could be, you know, almost like meet me where I am so I can pick it up and I can get it where, where I want it. And that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, within two hours of me ordering and it could be at 6 p.m. when I know I'm going to be home. That's when I want it, you know, not, not just necessarily sitting on my step. So I don't know the answer to that, but you're seeing trends in the market and demands from the customer of not just faster, 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 but also, um, you know, meet me on my terms. Like I want it where I want it um, and, and when I want it. And that doesn't necessarily mean um, in two hours. And to, and to that point where you're seeing, where you had mentioned Amazon as being a major player in the supply chain, you know, their purchase of Whole Foods was primarily obviously because of the, of the subset of customers are going to get out of that acquisition. But now at my local Whole Foods, I see Amazon Locker. So to your point, yes. you, you, you suddenly are creating a, uh, a ripple in the supply chain that's actually helping address some of those questions. That's kind no. of, what you, yeah. Yep. No, I, and I think that's it for sure. Um, so uh, one of our last uh, sections here, we've got two more to go. Um, we touched on this a little bit earlier with the, the Mall of America, and I think that'll kind of come into this conversation as well. But there are a lot of alternative channels for commerce, um, anything from pop-up stores to events. Um, it, it's very timely right now that we can talk about this, but the Mall of America has, has literally been transformed into what, what I consider to be one of the one of the world's largest pop-ups because of the Super Bowl's location this year is in Minneapolis. So yep. you're seeing like a confab of media row there and stores and all over the city, um, you know, pop-ups are, are, and they, they could potentially host up to 1 million people. So what use me, whether that's an example you want to use, what are you seeing in trends in pop-up stores and events uh, that kind of touch on personalization and experience? Yeah. I think pop-up stores and events go hand in hand, right? Like you have a big event. How do you enable people to set up shop? nearby and go to where the people are going and have an association with an event, right? Because events typically drive out specific demographics and you can, you can associate yourself if, if you happen to want to go to that demographic or you happen to sell that demographic. Um, it allows you to set up shop really nearby. And, and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of money to be made right there because people are in a different mindset when they're heading to an event versus when they're going shopping, right, or looking for a deal. Uh, so there's kind of a different uh, tolerance for for pricing um, from there, and you know they're going to get to the experience. I'm going for an experience, like there might as well be a retail component to it, and like how do you capture that? Um, I think um, you know another, and maybe we're going to talk on this here in a minute, but you know another kind of alternative channel to think through, or like what are existing channels that don't have commerce associated with them right now. Um, but could, could, could flip it on. And you see this a lot in tech, right? So um, this gets to um, beyond, beyond the events, but you know, Pinterest all of a sudden having viable pins, right? Like that's all of a sudden now they, they go from uh, an interesting place to store ideas to an interesting place to store ideas to purchase them. Um, you see Facebook starting to get more into the almost Craigslist um, domain by people being able to post things and selling them and having a marketplace online. Um, you know, but if, if, if Facebook decided to go bigger with that and decided to actually trade retail channels for retailers or for themselves, they would instantly be one of the largest retailers in the world, like overnight because they have a captured, captured audience that is, is pales, uh, everything else pales in comparison to it. So you start to think through like, what are those kind of alternative channels uh, beyond just like pop-up events and stuff, but also just existing user bases um, that could be monetized. And ultimately I think some of the largest tech companies in the world uh, may have their eye on a certain product or something, but ultimately they're going to pivot into two different things, media or retail. Um, and you're seeing that, you know, Amazon got into retail. Now they're into media. You know, Google is, you know, a search thing. And they're, now they're, they've got a whole retail division of like trying to work with that. Um, and they're, you know, they've got YouTube channel. That's all, all media. So you start to see like how everything kind of circles back to the mean of, of retail, which is, you know, the largest industry in the world. Um, so people are going to want to get a, try and get a piece of that. 
Facebook is a super interesting one um, because a lot of the, the political changes that have happened in Facebook's feed that they're addressing right now have, have pushed their play into media um, on the back burner uh, for, for a moment. Um, yeah. But quietly, I think they've been doing a lot with their marketplace. They push marketplace to mobile and to, death, or to desktop, I should say. So it's not only a pure mobile experience anymore. <clears throat> Uh, but I was scrolling through there, looking at stuff that's sold locally around my around my neighborhood, and now they're starting to push in um, local stores content that they're selling into that feed as well. So it represents a a massive opportunity for local retailers that are looking yeah. to get their product in front of people that it's a essentially a completely new channel. Yeah, um, I mean you can see the you can see the writing on the wall of like where they where they want to go with that, and I think retailers should be trying to get ahead of it and or work with them. To, to do something there and groups uh, I think for for brands as well group, the place that that groups have for closed or semi-public communities mm -hmm. people that are selling things in really super niche verticals or you know rummage sales for like I, I challenge anyone on this call to go to their go to their Facebook page and look for a rummage sale community in their in their in their area and they're gonna find one with 13,000 or 20,000 people yeah. on there selling their stuff it's really interesting yeah I agree um, so that leaves us, uh, I'm, I'm sure people have a lot of questions about what exactly they can do um, to kind of take some of these ideas to the next step. And Ryan, I think you're really best positioned to kind of talk about this with your work at Techstars and the startups that you've worked with. And um, there's a lot of digital tools that can help retailers. So I'm curious if you could kind of touch on what you're seeing. Um, maybe somebody who works at a large enterprise company, um, what, what can they do or, or how can they leverage the emerging tech to, to take some of these initiatives on and the plays for personalization and experience. Yeah, and I think there's just so many areas of improvement here where, you know, when you think about tech plus retail, um, a lot of people think like, oh, we're gonna have new, new stuff on the shelves or we're gonna have this new experience or whatever. But I, I honestly, I think where technology can help retailers most is, is more on the back end, right? Like in the, in, in the uh, employee management, um, in communication, in supply chain, um, and even uh, kind of logistics and delivery, like there's all this stuff on the back end that the customers never see. And that, A, it's a safer place to be able to try new technology um, because it isn't customer facing. I know retailers are always hesitant to try new technology that actually faces the customer um, and, and rightfully so. Uh, but this is an opportunity to really implement kind of new, new technologies um, out there. So yeah, we've talked through the, the pop-up kiosks, like that, that's more customer facing, but it's, that is ultimately a logistics problem uh, from there to being able to find the place or the players who can help find the space and get the product to where we need to go. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff um, on there that hits on a, I think a real vein uh, in the market here. Um, and then, yeah, just like the whole workforce thing, like you, you, you forget the scale of, of the workforce um, and not only just of the immediate workforce within a retailer, but also all the suppliers of that workforce of all the vendors of that, you know, of there. And there's just like, you start to get into hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that are in charge of getting a product to the shelf to get it sold. So what, are, you know, what are the tools, the communication uh, tools that allow that to, to interact um, from there. And then, you know, allowing them to, to interact with each other and, and across um, organizationally it's just is incredible um, and that you know that lends itself to to really just enterprise platforms that power the retail machine if you will you know and that that's a lot of back-end stuff um, overall uh, I think an area um, of interest as well is specifically for us is it, it actually is, is a bit more customer facing but is you know tools platforms um, procedures etc that help on the ROI of kind of new platforms. So think, you know, online, um, that could be voice, that could be AR, VR, like while those, those areas, um, most major retailers aren't touching yet, there's a lot to be learned there. Um, and I think, you know, when that, when those, those switches flip, um, you don't want to be caught without the ability to, to execute on it. And I think we're seeing that in voice right now, right? Like, so, you know, one of the largest, um, things sold over Christmas this year was Amazon Echoes and Google Plays and and um, you know if you if you don't have a strategy for that or if you thought that was not a real thing like now you're now you look stupid right and you're missing out on big market opportunities um, from there so get ahead of like the next wave of 
of things that are going to enable commerce um, and don't say, yeah, that's a pipe dream down the future. Engage with that, right? Like start to engage with startups who are doing that stuff and you can learn a lot from them and then actually position in your company to either be a fast follower um, and or a market leader um, on this stuff. So you'll see that in the market, there's definitely people who want to be the fast follower, but really I, I, in a lot of this stuff, you see the people who are actually the first movers ultimately can gobble up the most real estate um, uh, in, the, in the market and, and really be a leader um, ahead of the other people um, there. So anyways, that's, that's a bit of my rant around uh, the stuff that uh, is getting us excited um, for, for this coming year. Um, and, uh, you know, happy to, to hear any other insights from, from people, you know, on the call or, or follow up here as well. Excellent. Yeah. If anybody has any questions, feel free to submit a question. We're reaching the end of our, uh, of our webinar here today. So if you have questions, um, we'd love to hear them. Um, these are the points where you can reach all of us. Um, you can follow Shiftonomics and Branch Messenger um, at the Twitter handles there. And you can also follow Ryan Brochard at R Brochard. And uh, again, that'll give you access to a lot of the, the, the initiatives that he's working with uh, at Techstars. Um, so I don't see any, uh, any questions right now. So uh, apparently we've answered everybody's questions about this mysterious world. Um, but if anybody has any questions, we'll, we'll hang here for another few seconds and I'll see if anyone comes in. Um, alternatively, you can, um, you, can, you can send your questions to uh, at Chiftonomics and we will we'll address those as well. And uh, we'll be following up this webinar with a, um, uh, with a blog post as well as uh, insights that we've kind of talked about that, that go, you know, deeper dive into some of these topics as well. Uh, we got a question uh, for Ryan. Uh, how are organizations restructuring to innovate inside stores? Um, I think you're seeing it a lot in, in the makeup of the teams, right, that, that have to service it. So there's a lot more around kind of in-store fulfillment so that the making sure that the, the stuff is on the shelf and, and when needed. But if it's more of an actual experiential store, then there's, there's a lot more around the relationship building um, from that. So organizationally, you're seeing probably a shift towards um, more handholding, if you will, to have, have that experiential stuff. But I think more so, a lot of it's coming on the back end. You probably don't even see it uh, of the people who are in charge of putting the product in the right place at the right time um, and, and assuming that that product is something that they want <laughs> as well. So there's, there's a lot more, I think, investigation into um, what consumers are actually wanting. Uh, another question has come in, um, and, and I know you recently had taken a trip to Vietnam. So I'm, I'm really curious, uh, a lot of what we're talking about has uh, ramifications here, um, uh, you know, in the United States retail tech scene. What are your inclinations and what's happening on the global retail scene right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, ju I just got back from Vietnam. I was there all last week, busy with some startups uh, in the retail space. And it was actually pretty uh, mind-blowing to see the, the scale of A, development in that region, but B, how a lot of the changes that you're seeing in the supply chain <clears throat> and um, uh, the quality of the goods and, you know, a lot of the stuff that is very topical um, when it comes to anything on the back end is actually all being implemented and, and created there, right? Even though it's going to have a direct impact on everything that is happening on the shelves here. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I really walked away from that thinking that a lot of the innovation uh, in retail is actually going to take place um, at the ability to go right to the factory. You can see what's going on. You're able to, to implement that. And then also the, the employees who work for you actually understand um, that industry a lot better because they're more closely connected to it. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was kind of a, an eye-opening experience for me to understand really the new world order of, uh, I think, how startups and retail are going to um, evolve uh, from there. And, uh, you know, it, it makes sense. It actually makes a lot more sense, especially when you have a global supply chain, that these startups who are coming in to help with that are closer to the actual supply chain than they are to the, to the, the retailers and the people behind the computers. Do you have any uh, great book suggestions um, related to any of these topics that you might recommend? You know, a lot of my reading uh, on, on, the, on the topics of this are more for, you know, pure startups um, on there because I, you know, we look at, at Techstars, we've clearly got a whole, you know, retail 
focus with this program, but Techstars as a whole is a, you know, startup uh, community. Um, and I think a lot of those principles um, apply throughout there. And I'm also a big proponent of, of the local startup community and, and, and propping that up. So um, I'll, I'll give a shout out to um, uh, anyone who's, who's interested in, in uh, doing a startup, you know, if they're in that level, there's a book called Venture Deals. It really lays out how um, companies are, are uh, started and funded. Um, and then another one called Startup Communities, um, which uh, helps prop up local local um, startup communities and how to, how to really build up um, using corporations, startups, uh, investors, et cetera, to, to um, prop up uh, your community. And I'll add again, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, but um, the four, the hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, and Facebook by Scott Galloway is a real great read. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it breaks down um, all four of those companies and, and their, their direct relationships and the changes that are, that are fundamentally happening with, uh, with retail and, and yeah. the implications they have. It's a, it's a fantastic read. It's a great read. It's not like a, a pretty dense book, but it's very understandable and it, yeah. it makes it very clear the changes that are happening. Uh, one other shameless plug is uh, Unleashing the Innovators. I'm actually uh, quoted in this book from, from Jim Stengel and it actually talks a lot about not just retailers in general, but how large corporations have implemented uh, innovative techniques. Um, and there's a whole section towards how startups um, can help with that. Excellent. Well, we've got one more question. This might be a meaty one, so we'll see how quickly you can answer it. Um, do you feel that stores must be fully omni-channel enabled uh, this day and age in order to meet customer demand? Um, wow, that is meaty. Yeah. That, <laughs> well, I, I guess I would preface that. I don't think they need to, like, right now, today, right? Like, I think that's, it's an evolution for the customer as well, not just for the retailer. I think that, I don't know if the customers are fully ready for fully omni-channel everything, um, but I, you, you see the trends in that direction. So yeah, I think if it's not in, in your near-term roadmap um, as ways to get better at that, if not, you know, fully embrace it, then, then yeah, I think you, you need to, to, be, to be doing that. Excellent. And with that, uh, we would like to conclude uh, the inaugural uh, Shiftonomics uh, by Branch Messenger webinar. Ryan uh, Roshar, thank you very much for your time uh, spending with us. Uh, I think we dived into some really great topics. Um, and uh, again, we'll follow up this uh, with a blog post and some further content that kind of dives into the topics we talked about today. And again, thank you very much, Ryan, for your time. And thank you all for attending and listening in on this uh, webinar. Sounds good. Thank you. That's about all the time we have today. Thank you for joining us. Next episode, be sure to tune in as we will be talking to a customer service expert named Shep Hyken. If you follow customer service, you'll definitely be familiar with his work. He's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author and a prolific public speaker, an expert on all things customer service and customer experience. Until then, shift on.